0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came to be ser- came to serve, not, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Uh, My name is Clay Holland. I am a pastor here in the Presbytery with Brad. And uh, what's more, uh, actually, Brad and I have been trying to calculate this. We met in it was either 1996 or 1997. What what year did y'all move to uh, St. Louis? 96. Jamie, maybe I should ask Jamie. Uh, Well, we've we've known each other. We've known each other since the late 90s uh, when we went to seminary together at. Covenant Seminary, and for the last several years we served on staff together uh, at Christ the King in Houston, and in, in, in that relationship I'm here to tell you that I am about 98% happy that Brad is your pastor. Um, the, the 2% are the fact that I miss Jamie and Brad and their family, uh, but I am delighted that they're serving here. I love this church, I love Brad, I love the Wright family. I love what the Lord is doing in your midst, and I'm excited to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Let's pray together as we look into God's Word. Father, we do thank you. Uh, We thank you for your love and your mercy uh, to this church and to Brad and to your church all over the world because of Jesus. Because of Jesus who came, and he came uh, to serve and to give his life. We pray, Father, that we would see that and him clearly this morning, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Strangely enough, not too long ago, I was thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, when's the last time you thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger? It might have been a while. I was actually reading an article um, about Schwarzenegger and about his life, and this article was mainly geared toward kind of his second act of his life, uh, which was his acting career and then his political career. But the, Because you tend to think that before Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator and before Arnold Schwarzenegger was married to a Kennedy and before he was the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the most dominant bodybuilder in the world. And this article went on to detail like his dominance in, in, in that sport uh, at, at a particular time where he was uh, Mr. Universe six times and Mr. Olympia Uh, five times for a total of 11 world bodybuilding titles. Now, I have no idea what that means, but I do know this. If you are the world champion in anything 11 times, bodybuilding, spades, cornhole, whatever it is, it's impressive. It's hard to do. Um, It's very hard to do. And so the, the point of this article really was that the fact that Schwarzenegger could pivot like that that he could pivot from a successful bodybuilding career into a very successful acting career into a very successful political career had something to do with his indomitable spirit, his drive. And the argument they were making was that he brought the same drive, the same passion, the same purpose, the same perseverance into his acting and his political career that he did to his bodybuilding career. And to prove that point, They offered this quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger from when he was a bodybuilder. He said this. That's what most people lack. Having the guts to go on and just say they'll go through the pain no matter what happens. I have no fear of fainting. I do squats until I fall over and pass out. So what? It's not going to kill me. I wake up five minutes later and I'm okay. A lot of other athletes are afraid of this, so they don't pass out. They don't go on. I read that quote and I said, Well, that's it. I'm never going to be an 11 time world champion in bodybuilding because I do not want to do squats until I actually pass out. But you know, sometimes I do think about that when I work out. I work out and it kind of feels good you know and then I walk out of the gym or now my garage or wherever it is you know my living room and I think to myself what if you could only do this once have you ever thought this what if you could just do this one time and you would have all of the benefits of that workout last for the rest of your life and you never had to do it again I think about that sometimes you know what that's a, a, a sort of a a representation of this idea of glory without sacrifice, of getting all the benefits of something without having to work really hard for it, it's actually a particularly human way of interacting with the world. How can I get strong without continually having to work out? How can I get thin without dieting? How can I get wealthy without working hard? How can I make good grades without studying? How can I make the team without practicing? You know, how can I get glory without sacrifice? Now, if you're of a certain age uh, in this room, you've probably now come to a conclusion that that's really hard to do. Most of the time, you can't do that. You really can't do that. But the dream of being able to do that fuels a lot of the things that we see in our culture, right? There's a reason that the Powerball racks itself up to $525 million dollars. You know, every several months. There's a reason why they put magazines right at the checkout of the grocery store that promise you some painless path to perfection, you know, without having to work for it, because they know that it's going to grab your attention. There's something embedded in the human heart that makes us long for glory without sacrifice. Well, the Gospel of Mark knows a lot about this, because here in Mark chapter 10, we come to a very interesting passage. This is the third time in three chapters that Jesus has predicted his death on the cross in Jerusalem. And in each of the times that Jesus has predicted that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die on the cross, one or more of his disciples have challenged him on that point. In fact, the three disciples that challenge him by name are Jesus' three closest friends. Peter does it in chapter 8, then all of the disciples do it in chapter 9, then James and John do it in chapter 10. Peter, James, and John are his buddies. The the three people that that, that went to the Mount of Transfiguration and they rebuke him. In chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus because he believes that Jesus doesn't actually understand the job of the Messiah. Peter does not believe that Jesus knows that the Messiah is not supposed to die. In chapter 9, immediately after Jesus tells his disciples for a second time that he is going to die at the hands of men, an argument breaks out among all of the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. And now here we are in chapter 10, immediately after Jesus tells his disciples in great detail that again he's going to die. And, and, and bear in mind, that they are, and Mark makes a point of this, they are on the road to Jerusalem when this happens. Like, they're close. This is about to happen. The triumphal entry, the week of Jesus' challenges at the hands of all the leaders in Jerusalem, his death on the cross, the resurrection, this is imminent. This is about to happen. Jesus tells them again. And this time, James and John kind of pull them away from the crowd, and they say, hey, look, Jesus, I know you're going to Jerusalem, and when you get there... Uh, You're actually going to establish your kingdom. You're going to kick out the Romans and you're going to set up a throne. We want to sit at your right hand and your left. He had just told them that is not what he's going to do, but they cannot hear him because they cannot understand the path of glory that Jesus is on because that path leads to his death. They can't hear him. They just can't hear it. He's as explicit about it as he can possibly be, but they can't hear it. And so Jesus, who exercises incredible patience here, and he reminds us and he reminds me as a pastor of how amazingly patient that he is for all of us as we misunderstand him, as we misapprehend his purposes uh, in the world. He asks a rhetorical question now to all of his disciples. Well, actually to, to James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And James and John say, yes, we can can do that. But they can't. They can't. They have no idea what they're talking about. And calling all the disciples over to him, he teaches them. Again, Jesus exercises amazing patience with his disciples. He has been trying and trying to impress upon him who he is and what he is going to do and what that path entails. And they keep on missing it. And these are the guys that spend all of their time with him. And so he says in verse 45, this is the thing. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, since this is an installation service, I want to stop here for just a second And relate some of what is happening here in this interaction of Jesus with his disciples to what is happening here in this really amazing and wonderful church. And one of the places I want to stop and focus our attention on is this act of Jesus' patience, his patient instruction. Brad, you were at Christ the King You know when we started this series on Mark, which now seems a long time ago. Uh, And so you know where we are and you know what's kind of going on here. You know that Jesus in Mark is constantly talking about sacrifice all the time. Sacrifice, sacrifice. Don't exalt yourself, lower yourself. Don't get don't look for the head of the table, look for the worst place. All of those things that everybody is missing the point all the time. And the disciples keep missing the point about sacrifice because what the disciples want more than anything else is power and authority. They want Jesus to go into Jerusalem to win a military battle, to win a military victory, to set himself up as the king on earth, and they want power. They want to rule alongside with him. They want their power, and they're supposed to be his best friends, his closest confidence. Don't you think after three times of doing this in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 that this would be the place where Jesus just grabbed James and John by the scruff of their neck and lifted them up and shook them around and said, Look, you people! Y'all are driving me crazy! Can you not hear what is about to happen here? Why can't you hear me? Stop it! Come on! But he doesn't do that. He, again, patiently and gently teaches them he asks them questions he doesn't raise his voice he doesn't express any impatience whatsoever and then again he just teaches him he patiently instructs his disciples because Jesus knows that they like we are in process they're in process we're in process we don't get it the first time or the second time or the third time or however long you've been a christian You know, extrapolate exponentially, right? Now, the first thing I think to understand, and this is for you, Brad, and I think you already know this, but I'll just reiterate it, is you are not Jesus. That's probably good for you all to know, too. This man right here in the front row is not Jesus. If you try to make him into that, you're going to destroy him, you're going to destroy yourselves, you're going to destroy the church. Don't do that. And now that we kind of have that straight, we can kind of relate what Jesus is doing here to pastoral ministry. There are going to be times, many times, Brad, that you're going to want to throw up your hands and you're going to want to grab people by the collar and you're going to want to shake them around and go, we've been over this, y'all. You know, we've been over this a few times in the Bible. You know, preach. I, I had lunch with you last week. We talked about this, right? Um, just don't give up. Jesus did not give up with his disciples. He doesn't give up with you or with me or his church. He doesn't give up, and he's gentle, and he's patient. He doesn't break bruised reeds, which is a really beautiful thing. And Jesus was out without sin. He doesn't give up, and he's gentle with people, and he has no sin. You and I are steeped in sin, so anywhere that there's a speck in someone else's eye, you know there's a plank in ours. So patiently bear those burdens along with Jesus. Why? Because for Jesus, the path of glory lay through suffering. And that's really the point. We see that in verse 45. And we're going to break verse 45 down just a little bit. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see three things there. We'll see these quickly. That Jesus is a willing sacrifice. He's a humble sacrifice. And he's a purposeful sacrifice. Jesus is a willing sacrifice. When you're reading along in the Gospels, you'll probably come along to a few different times, particularly what's known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll come to a few times where you see some explicit claims of Jesus' divinity. One of those is the Transfiguration, which happened in the chapter uh, before this in, in Mark, uh, you know, where Jesus' whole divine glory is put on display. But more times in the Synoptic Gospels that you'll see that, you'll see implicit claims of deity. Where Jesus does something that only God can do, or he says something kind of in passing that if you don't pay attention to it, you won't get the gravity of it. This is one of those times in, in, in Mark uh, 10, verse 45. And you see this implicit claim to deity in one little word in this, in this verse. and That word is came. Came the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. Now what does that imply? Well, for the Son of Man to come to the earth, not to serve, must have meant that he was somewhere else before he came to the earth, right? And where he was, was in his rightful place as the eternal third person in the Trinity, the one who came to us. You see, Jesus is a willing sacrifice Who saw from his place in heaven the plight that his people on earth were in, that they could do nothing about it, that we could do nothing about it. And so he came. That's how much Jesus loves you. That he set down his crown on his throne in heaven and came to earth, and he came to die. He came to die. He came, as we're going to see, to die a death that, that you and I deserve. But willingly, he paid the price for your sins. A willing sacrifice is Jesus, the one who came. Jesus is a willing sacrifice, he's also a humble sacrifice. He came, he came from his throne in heaven. What was happening when Jesus was sitting on his throne in heaven? Well, the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim and all of the company of heaven were surrounding his throne day and night, constantly singing and constantly praising him. Why? Because he's the king over all creation. He's the agent of creation. He's the ruler of the universe. But in what posture did Jesus come? He came in the posture of humility. We see it again there in verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now step back from that for just a second and imagine what that actually means. The King of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who has been eternally worshipped came to earth in human flesh. The one who created human beings became dependent upon human beings for his own survival. This is humility. And this is exactly the crux of Jesus' answer to James and John. When they wanted to sit at his left hand and his right hand and have authority and power on this earth in themselves. This is his answer. You see, Jesus knew the It was normative in that culture as it is in ours, Jesus tells him in verse 40, for those in positions of authority to take on all of the trappings of that authority and to lord it over people. But then Jesus says, not so with you. Not just James and John, not just all of the disciples, but with us as well. If you're a follower of Jesus... Jesus' words ring true to you as well. Not so with you. Not so with you. The strong become weak so that the weak may become strong. That is the way of life in the kingdom of God. And that is why living as a follower of Jesus is such a challenge for us. Because it is not the way of life on this earth. It is not the way of life in the woodlands. It is not the way of life in the greater Houston area. It is not the way of life. Power, authority, lording it over people, that is the normative way of life. So it looks weird when somebody acts a different way. But Jesus says, as a follower of Jesus, this is actually normative for you. Because this is what the Son of Man came to do. Now, if this is a challenge... For you, take comfort because this is the mother of all challenges you know, in the, in the history of humankind on this earth. Because we're not unique in this. Pride is the father of all sins. Pride is the father of all sins. The, the first sin recorded in the Bible was not the action of Adam and Eve eating of the fruit of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. That was not the first sin. The first sin was what went on in their hearts that propelled them to eat of that fruit. And what went on in their hearts was pride. A desire not to live under the authority of God, but to be their own authority. To be God for themselves. To be like God, as Satan said, in his temptation of them. And that pride, that desire to live under our own authority, to be our own God, has been embedded in the human heart ever since that day now this is important for us in a moment like this pastors and elders and deacons and leaders and members of the congregation it's something important to pay attention to in the life of the church we're human beings and the sin of Adam and Eve was not particular to them it's embedded in us we all struggle with pride and we all struggle with the temptation to exercise and lord authority over others. And one of the places, this is super ironic, but this is true. One of the places that it most manifests itself, one of the places that it is most tempting to manifest itself, is in the very place that it should least manifest itself, which is in the life of the church. It's deeply ironic. That the place that the Lord built, you know, the house that the Lord built on the bedrock of his own life is the place where we struggle with this idea of power and authority and humility the most. So you know, Brad, that you're going to be tempted to lord your authority over the congregation and to exalt yourself, you know, as you as you lead these people. And elders, you're going to be tempted to lord your authority over Brad to make sure he understands, you know, who he is and what his place in this kind of you know, world is here, this, this microcosm we have going. You know, members of grace, you're going to be tempted to, to pull all of the elders or other leaders aside, kind of like James and John did, and say, hey, you know, can you get this guy under control a little bit here? There's this, 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 and this that's kind of, you know, like bothering me a little bit. Can you do something about that? You know, you're going to be tempted in that way. It's inevitable. In any leadership change, it's inevitable in any institution that involves human beings, and pastors are nothing more than human beings who are in process uh, by the grace of God, just like the rest of us are. And Jesus has words for us in that situation. Not so with you. Not so with you. But you might think, but this is the way that the world works. This is how things happen. This is the way things get done. And Jesus says, exactly. This is the way that the world works. I'll say it again. Not so with you. This is not the way that my kingdom works. My kingdom works by working exactly the opposite that the way that the world works works. You're here to serve one another. You're here to humble yourselves before one another. You're here to give up your own desires that the mission of this church and this community in the woodlands might thrive and might take root precisely because you do things differently here than the way that the world does them. That's the magic of it. That's the beauty of it. That is how the kingdom of God interacts with communities in exactly the opposite way that the world interacts. So Jesus is a willing sacrifice. He's a humble sacrifice. Finally, he's a purposeful sacrifice. The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, up until this point, Jesus is instructing his disciples. And he is basically saying, I want you, under my grace and under the power of the Holy Spirit, we know later from other teaching, to mimic me in these things. To mimic me in not wanting to be served. And mimicking me in in, in a desire to serve. But here's something that only Jesus can do. This is not about you, this is not about me, this is not about Brad. Only Jesus can give his life as a ransom for many The word for ransom that is used in this text is is the Greek word lutron, and it was a word that was used most often in that time period to signify a a person who would purchase a slave for his past, present, and future worth in order to set that slave free. So the way that this would work is if you were going to purchase a slave to set him free, you and that slave's owner would calculate the value of that slave and extrapolate it over the period of time that you think that that slave would serve you. So you wouldn't only pay his present worth, you'd also pay his future worth. And you would pay that price for the sole purpose of then redeeming him. Redeeming him, ransoming him, lutroning him, setting him free. Now, here's the question that Jesus is getting us to ask. What is the price of our ransom from slavery? You see, we as human beings right now are not slaves to any human master. But the Apostle Paul tells us, and he tells us clearly, that we are indeed slaves. We are slaves to sin. All of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there has to be a price, a lutron, a ransom that would be paid that covers past, present, and future sins. What is that price. Well, Paul answers that question again in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The price that must be paid for ransom from sin is death. Either we pay it or someone ransoms us. Someone redeems us. Someone substitutes himself and pays that price. That price is paid by Jesus. Willingly, humbly, purposefully paying the price of ransom for our sins on the cross. That's the choice. Either Jesus pays it or we pay it. Suffering God's wrath due to us for our sins, Jesus willingly, humbly, and purposefully went to the cross. One of the places that this is... This willing sacrifice of Jesus portrayed most beautifully and poignantly is in the wonderful C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edward Pevensey, Edmund Pevensey, uh, he, he finds his way into Narnia. And somehow or another, he gets himself into a world of trouble uh, because he promises that he would bring the white witch all of his siblings in exchange for an unlimited supply of Turkish delight. Have you ever had Turkish delight? Y'all might like it, but I'm gonna tell you this. Nobody could get me to do anything for an unlimited supply of Turkish delight. But Edmund likes it, and it was his, it was his, it was his heart language. Uh, and so for a promise of an unlimited supply of Turkish delight, Edmund promises to deliver his siblings over to the White Witch. One thing that he did not know because he was not steeped in the law of Narnia was that if he failed to do this, he was responsible for his failure and the payment for, the price of payment for his failure would be his own life. He would have to be sacrificed on the stone of sacrifice if he did not keep his promise. So the white witch came, came to deliver on that promise, came to, came to claim Edmund, for sacrifice and that's when she went into conversation with Aslan the great lion and after Aslan and the white witch conferenced about this Aslan trudged back to his own tent the white witch in glee with all of her minions left and the next morning bright and early by himself Aslan trudged himself to the stone of sacrifice Susan and Lucy Pevensey following along to see what would happen. And on that stone, Aslan was put to death. The white witch thought that she had won the greatest victory. She thought she had made the greatest negotiation of the history of the universe by Aslan substituting himself for the life of this little kid who only liked Turkish delight, Edmund. But then after she left, something amazing happened. That stone cracked and Aslan was raised to life and so Susan and Lucy who were already there loving on him stroking his beard asked him what happened to Aslan and this is what he said if the white witch understood the true meaning of sacrifice she might have interpreted the deep magic differently for when a willing sacrifice a willing victim who has committed no treachery dies in a traitor's stead the stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. You see that? That's the Son of Man who came, a willing victim not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sin against God is a cosmic problem and it requires a cosmic solution. Jesus' willing, humble, purposeful, purposeful sacrifice on the cross is the only solution to it. It's the only solution. So the question I'll leave you with this morning is the one that Jesus asked his disciples. Are you counted in that number? You know, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you counted in that number by grace through faith? He invites you and he promises you that if you come to him by faith, he will receive you. He will not cast you away. Come to him and be transformed by his grace let's pray Jesus thank you that you came you did not stay where you were simply to watch us struggle against sin in a way that could never be counted as removing ourselves from it we thank you that you came and we thank you that you are a sacrifice who gives us life a ransom for many We pray that we would come to you by faith and be transformed by that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.